everyone and welcome back to episode seven of the Political Incorrectors. It's great to have you here. My name is Luke. And my name is Eric. On this episode, we have our good old friend, Jack Nolan. He is the Vice Chairperson and Policy and Education Officer of Labour Youth. He's a student of History and Politics in Trinity College, Dublin. And he's a prominent member of Irish Political Twitter. It's great to have you, Jack. How are you? Very good, lads. Thanks a million again for having me on. Really, really delighted to be here. Yeah, so Jack, I guess to let everyone listening know uh, who you are, uh, very briefly, um, if you were speaking to someone who had no uh, no idea who Jack Nolan was, uh, what would you tell them to let them know? <laughs> well, uh, first of all, I tell them to be on Twitter a little bit more because, you know, it's <laughs> hard to escape me uh, from Twitter. But no, no, in all seriousness, um, for anyone who wouldn't know me, I'm Jack Nolan. I'm a 19-year-old uh, history and politics student, as, as Luke said earlier. Uh, I'm an active member of Labour and the vice chairperson of Labour Youth, and I'm also uh, the central council rep for Labour Youth on the Labour Party Central Council. And I'm involved in various other uh, organisations and causes related to progressive activism, to left-wing politics, and particularly within that, the democratic socialist side of of, of left-wing politics in Ireland. And as well as that, I would also kind of highlight maybe uh, previous projects and campaigns that I've been involved in. Uh, I first got involved uh, in student activism through the Irish Second Level Students Union, where I met, of course, uh, yourself, Luke and, and, and Eric. And through that, I ended up uh, being involved in party politics, as I said earlier, Labour and various other campaigns, such as the Irish Palestine Solidarity Campaign, uh, working to reform the Leaving Certificate. I worked on the, the Calculated Grades uh, Scrap School Profiling Campaign, uh, a year and a half ago, and I've worked on various other campaigns uh, of the sort. I guess the next question that naturally follows that, uh, you know, you emphasize that you have roots in the labor movement, uh, that you're a political activist, and you kind of touched on what the bridge was to get you involved in uh, activism, the ISSU, but what spurred you to get involved with activism generally, and the, the idea of activism, the concept of activism in the first place? I know the I, ISSU was your first vocal point, but what got you to that point? Uh, what inspired Jack to get involved? Well, you've touched on something actually very important there, Eric, because a lot of people probably looking back on maybe my track record on certain issues or, you know, within certain campaigns would look at the ISSU as the starting point. But from a very, very young age, I've been engaged in progressive campaigns, particularly uh, campaigns within the trade union movement and within uh you know, other ventures within uh, left-wing politics through my family. My dad's uh, an active uh, official with SIP2. He's a trade union official and works uh, for the largest union on the island. And from a very, very early age, uh, I was very, very interested in union politics, in the power of a trade union. And from then on, as I got older and became more politically aware, um, I, I began to notice, you know, the ISSU and then other union ventures that I could get involved in. Uh, I'm now a member of Mandate uh, through my my work and as well as that I'm a member of the uh, industrial workers of the world the largest trade union in the world so they kind of those those roots kind of led me to becoming more active uh, within within political movements but I would come from I would consider a very very political family like my mom and dad would be very engaged in politics uh, neither of them are members of a political party but would be very very interested in current affairs and debates around the dinner table from a very early age where we're based around the the soup of the day in regards to politics or whatever scandal or or story was breaking so I, I think in terms of the family history it's it's in the blood and uh, not just you know party politics or maybe 
uh, involvement in electoral politics, but the interest and the engagement was always there. And I think that's really what spurred me uh, to get involved and get active. Yeah, I think that leads us on very nicely to the next question. And that's, you know, you're obviously interested in activism and politics. You're faced with the choice to join any political party out there. Uh, and you cho chose the Labour Party. So could you tell us why you chose the party? What made you get involved there? Well, it's, it's always an interesting one when you're, you're faced, as you said, Luke, with so many different uh, options and so many different avenues that you can travel in terms of the party political route. And it was really strange because I had, I, like I vividly remember after my junior said, wanting to join a political party and get involved in some way. And I've been thinking particularly about the Workers' Party at that point because my dad and my two uncles uh, many moons ago were Workers' Party activists. And that was kind of my first introduction into any form of party political activism within the family, I suppose, directly talking to someone who was in a political party. And I kind of did my research and I kind of looked at as well, I kind of introspected and said, well, what party appeals to me the most through my motivations for being involved in politics? And I suppose then looking at Labour and looking at, I suppose, the fact that my family then became Labour voters and the union movement is so connected with the Labour movement, the Labour Party really stood out to me. And one particular facet of that is the party's heritage. James Connolly and James Larkin were always names that would have been spoken by uh, older, mem you know, older members of the family when they talked about, uh, I suppose, advancements in the rights for working people, uh, advancements for, you know, in rights in the world of work, and just you know, the general improvement of conditions for people uh, in Ireland. And they were two people that I particularly took um, inspiration from. And then leading on, of course, people like Mary Robinson, Michael D. Higgins, uh, all really, really uh, inspiring people to to look up to. That's kind of what drew, that kind of what drew me to the party. Yeah, no, thanks so much. Um, but I guess there's been there have been two huge wins for Labour recently. There's been the electoral win in Dublin Bay South uh, by election. But in addition to this, I would argue there's been a cultural cultural win for the party too. Um, a lot of young people have joined the Labour party and the labor movement uh, uh, recently. This is what we've seen, I've seen from social media anyways, and I definitely think that there's a new wave in Irish politics. They call it the wave of change. This is how we, we kind of refer to it during the uh, 2020 general election. And the wind has definitely, I think, moved favorably to some extent for the Labour Party. So firstly, how do you feel about the win in the Dublin based South by-election? And the second prong of the question would be, how do you feel about the, the new wave, the new, uh, I think, impetus energy that's making a lot of young people grasp onto the labor movement and why do you think it's occurring and i suppose younger people get more politically conscious and going out and voting for progressive left movements i think that's helped us kind of i suppose in the immediate aftermath of the election to kind of maintain relevance but i'd like to also draw on the shannon election of 2020 one of the kind of underrated changes that occurred within irish politics in the last year year and a half we in all five um, Shannon vacancies that we contested, we won. And that showed that the Shannon electorate really wanted strong Labour values to be represented. And I think you, you see the likes of Annie Howie and Rebecca Moynihan, Marie Sherlock, uh, and Mark Wallen, and, and, and then Vanna, Ivana Batchik, as I will uh, talk about uh, later on, but particularly um, Annie, Marie, and Rebecca, three really, really strong. Um, left-wing women being elected to Shandadairn, considering all six of our TDs that were returned in February men, this gave a real breath of fresh air to the Labour Parliamentary Party. And I think a lot of young people 
who believe in progressive causes and are linked with the trade union movement, the feminist movement, the student uh, politics movement, they all saw themselves represented in those three people. And as well as that, I think the, as you said, the boy election, Ivana's track record spoke for itself. Ivana has been obviously, is now a TD, but had been a senator for 14 years, had been our Shannon leader for 10 years, and had really shown that progressive left change can be brought in a tangible sense through the Shannon and through legislation. She has the, the best track record in terms of bills. She has the most bills passed from any senator in opposition in history. So that's a really, really mon monumentous thing to have to your name. And I think that really spoke to the, the voters of Dublin Bay South. And I think another thing that spoke to, to them was the groundswell behind her from the party. You see the amount of young empowered activists who are coming out and supporting her and you see the positive campaign and that was really really um well utilized by by senior party i think that really spoke to people because i think something that was done by Fine Gael was the demonization of Sinn Féin and the demonization of Sinn Féin voters and to an to an extent vice versa with Sinn Féin it, it became almost a two-horse race in the minds of many until um, I suppose polling came out and people started to realise just on the ground that Ivana's campaign was incredibly strong in and of itself and it didn't rely on other parties, it didn't rely on the, I suppose, the failures or the performance of other parties, it relied on our own values, on our own principles, but it also relied on us taking initiative. Honestly, I, I really found the idea of a by-election when it was called quite daunting because you're kind of thrown into this mode of, well, we're not doing so well in the national polls and even in the Dublin polls, we weren't doing particularly well. So how are we going to fare? But once Ivana was confirmed as the candidate and this policy platform came out for a really good campaign, I, I definitely changed my tune. I really thought we were in it to win it. And lo and behold, that was, that was our major win. And it was our first by-election win in over a decade. And I think this is really going to, as Eric mentioned earlier, increase the amount of young people we've already seen coming into the party it'll increase that influx of young progressive activists who see a party that admittedly and i would hold my hand up and say are not perfect nor any political party but are actively making changes from within and outside of the party on a national and local level to do better yeah i think you're right and it's a great point about the shannon team like there's no doubt you have a great team of senators there uh, particularly annie hoyer i suppose all three of us sort of cross paths with annie through the student union movement and it's great to see how someone can be so prominent in student politics and then jump so you know straight into national politics it's amazing um and again like there's no doubt that ivana's win has really boosted the party and that's um surely good to see for supporters of labor that was definitely a morale boost i'd say um that kind of brings us on nicely then to the next question and that's um do you see a future for Labour um, in Irish politics and where do you see Labour going from here I think in the next few general elections, next general election, elections after that? What is the future for the party? Yeah, and to Jack, before you answer, just uh, uh, to top Luke's question, because, you know, you mentioned and we all mentioned the kind of progressive youth wave that has definitely favoured Labour to a great extent, but playing the balancing act of that and then, as you said, the polls and then the public opinion, the wider public opinion uh, in regards to Labour, especially after, of course, the recession that occurred in Ireland and the part that a lot of people felt deeply that Labour played in that. How do you feel the, the future looks for Labour squaring all of these positive and negative factors? That's 
they're fantastic questions. And I think these are the questions that need to be put to Labour members and activists, because it's all well and good for me to sit here and extol the virtues of Labour till the cows come home, you know, and not address, I suppose, people's concerns about Labour. And I suppose the worry of where Labour are going to be in the next, not just the next uh, couple of years, but as, as you said, in the next cycles in the next you know election cycles so you know in the next 20 30 years i think asking does labor have a future is like asking is the public catholic we're the oldest continuous party in the state and as much as we have very very um checkered fortunes when it comes to elections in in recent years i am i for one i'm certain that labor are not going anywhere regardless of their makeup regardless of how they will look they're still going to be a part of Irish politics. But I'd just like to draw on something that uh, was said particularly uh, loudly after the last general election within Labour, and it was actually utilised by Aon O'Riordan in his um, uh, campaign for leadership. Labour's place in Ireland's past does not necessarily guarantee Labour a place in Ireland's future. Now, contrary to what I've just said about having, uh, you know, having some form of a future, Aon really hits the nail on the head when we're talking about a strong and, I suppose, prosperous future, because it's easy for a party to continue on and to, you know, just keep the red flag flying, as we'd always say. But it's easy to just stay there and not make any gains and be kind of stagnant, as you would see with, you know, parties like the Workers' Party who are now without political representation on the island. But I think Labour are not just the party that will pewter out and will just, I suppose, die out. They won't just um, falter over, you know, the course of a couple of years. But I do think we will see, we will see a change in tides in, in, in the left, on the left in general. We're going to see a huge groundswell of support behind Sinn Féin. The SOC Dems are obviously a very, very similar party to Labour in terms of our policy platforms and our core uh, principles and values and our guiding ideologies. And as well as that, you have Solidarity People Before Profit and other left parties that do pose some form of a threat to Labour's traditional voter base. But I think Labour will overcome that by being um, a party that has tradition. And I think the old kind of adage of, you know, reject modernity, embrace tradition. I think that's really going to be uh, a feature of Labour's future. I personally think we're going to do quite well. And I really think we will be able to, you know, encapsulate people's um, values and people's uh, beliefs around how this country should be run and how we can make society better and improve uh, the country as a whole. So I do think there's a strong future for Labour, but it solely depends on going back to the question that was asked addressing the i suppose the negative aspects of labor's history if we don't address the fact that we were a party that uh, were happy to implement austerity in a government uh, coalition that i personally you know in principle don't agree with i don't believe that labor and finnegale ideologically are a good fit despite the tradition that we have of entering government to center right i don't particularly believe that it's in any way representative of the values that the grassroots in Labour hold. And I think the way the party is, has dealt with the um, relationships we have with other parties that maybe aren't at the left uh, need to change. And just to, I suppose, to round off this particular answer, um, 
Jack O'Connor, the former general president of SIP2, an outgoing chair of the Labour Party, one of his core manifesto uh, policies was being involved in a review of our time in government. And I think that in order to ensure that we have a renewed and sensible approach to you know, this really, really strong surge towards the left, this review can't come quickly enough. We need to review, apologise and hope that we are uh, worthy of absolution in, in, in the eyes of the electorate, because it's easy to say sorry, but it's even easier to just assume that that apology has been accepted. So that's also another big part of what we have to do to not just ensure that we have a future, but we have a strong and viable, viable future for younger activists getting involved in the movement. That's um, really interesting stuff there, Jack. I suppose my next question is, is linked to the future of the party. Um, and you mentioned leadership there in your answer um, throughout. Uh, and obviously the leader of a party defines the party, kind of defines the tra trajectory of a party. Um, so I suppose two questions. How do you feel about Alan Kelly as leader of Labour? Um, and who do you think will succeed him or who would be your ideal leader after Alan? And I don't want to like throw Alan out too quickly because obviously he's only new enough in the role, but uh, looking ahead, do you think there's there's uh, someone else who sticks out uh, and what do you think about Alan currently? Well, I suppose coming from someone who backed Alan's leadership campaign last year, um, I was very, very happy to see Alan Kelly uh, run for leader of the Labour Party. I think Alan is someone who is a very, very strong and, you know, very, very loud voice on the left. He's someone that is really, really um, passionate about pushing for progressive politics. And he's someone that I believe is has made a really, really steadfast commitment to rebuilding the Labour image, uh, I suppose, re, re, you know, repatriating the Labour message and really being able to rehabilitate the party uh, after a very, very um, tough couple of years in coalition. And as well as that, I, I have to... Uh, unenviably address the the next part of the question <laughs> i wasn't <laughs> gonna let you run away <laughs> yeah, no, you couldn't you couldn't let me away with that one in fairness uh who i see succeeding alan as leader it's a tough question and i can see i in my head i can see a number of names popping up i think I, i'm not going to go in any particular order but three people that stand out as potential future leaders of the labor party are um duncan smith uh, Aon O'Riordan and Ivana Bacic. They are three names that I see uh, in positions of leadership within the party in one form or another. Also, people like Jed Nash and maybe further down the line, Annie Howie also uh, come to mind. And I think out of the five that I named there, I couldn't pick one and say they wouldn't be a capable leader of the Labour Party. Yep, yeah, no, really optimistic stuff there. And I think there's a... It'd definitely be a delight to the ears of Labour members to hear you say all of that. So, you know, you mentioned Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, and uh, what I think can't be denied in that there's so much, somewhat of a cultural rejection uh, for the two parties you see, particularly on Twitter and online, uh, and in how people express themselves, young people about the parties too, that are in political bubbles. Um, and they're in government for the first time together in tandem in history, uh, along to the Green Party. So I guess... What my, my, my question is, what do you think of the three-party government at this time? And of course, that question can be seen as broad-ended because there's lots to the three-party government. But in terms of the fact that these three particular parties are in government at this time, considering, let's say, the program for government, which was uh, commended 
at the time it came out, like continentally, but also the work that the government has done and has not done possibly. What are your opinions on the government? Well, I suppose when the government came into effect last June and when I suppose that the coalition was formed, having read the programme for government, I was cautiously, I wouldn't say optimistic, but cautiously interested in what was going to happen uh, in regards to, I suppose, change. And would we see any kind of minimal or incremental change to the government that we had um, or, or I suppose to the system that we've we've inherited uh, you know, since the last uh, electoral cycle. And I think I was probably slightly naive when I saw the Green Party going into coalition with Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. It was, I, I suppose I had mixed um, opinions on whether it was of any interest or of any relevance to change. I felt the fact that a really strong progressive left-to-centre party was entering government with two um, very, I suppose, traditional, well-established right-of-centre parties was in some way disappointing because it was reneging on the promises that they'd made uh, to many, many uh, facets of, the, of their um, voter base. But I think we've been seriously let down by all three parties. I think the Green Party have shown, to, shown themselves to be a party with very, very good policies come election time, but when programmes for government are negotiated and governments are formed, those policies fall by the wayside and the, I suppose, the human power behind them to implement them isn't necessarily there. As far as Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are concerned, um, I've always been very, very critical of Fine Gael. Uh, I suppose I was raised in a household that were, as I said, strong on trade union politics, very, very left and progressive and they never really warmed to the idea of Fine Gael embracing progressive politics. Then again we've seen in the last 10 years a small shift from I suppose a section of the Fine Gael party towards progressive politics which of course is welcome but on the whole I think Fine Gael is a party that is too rooted in a really really austere and cold image with the electorate that they've been in government for um, 10 years now in one way in, in some form or another and realistically have not delivered on the promises that they made back in 2011 that said labor the exact same can be said for labor and um, in regards to the promises that we made and um, going into the 2011 general election but i think considering Fine Gael have had 10 years to implement the policies that they so 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 strongly believed in 10 years ago it's it's really seeming as if their time in government is borrowed Fianna Fáil is I suppose it, it's always a poison chalice when you talk about Fianna Fáil in the context of being in government particularly to anyone who is between the ages of 25 and 40 I mean I was only discussing this with someone very very recently Fianna Fáil historically of course our party that a right of centre are considered to be in this day and age more socially conservative than Fine Gael and are a party that really do embody all that is kind of associated with establishment Irish politics you know they Eamon de Valera their founder crafted the 1937 constitution uh, they are averaged over 50% of the vote uh, in the space of 75 years and they really do kind of 
embody all that is Irish politics. And they they really do kind of, I suppose, embody what a big tent party is. Many, many working class families, including my own at one point. But I think Fianna Fáil had two particular junctures to save face and change direction. The first was in 1997 after the Rainbow Coalition, when Bertie was able to, to mobilise uh, the electorate towards a Fianna Fáil majority, something that hadn't been done since the days of Jack Lynch. So that was a particularly uh, crucial juncture for Fianna Fáil to make changes to their party politics, uh, to the policies that their party embraced, and to the direction that they wanted to take the party in. Bertie famously claimed to be a socialist uh, during that kind of, you know, intercession between Fianna Fáil being this new wave of change and then the recession hit. And I suppose for a long time within, probably for a short time within a very long period of Fianna Fáil government, we did see facets of the uh, kind of marginal social democratic wing of the party take, take shape. And we did see a slightly more progressive Fianna Fáil. But then came the crash, then came the, the inevitable pop to the property bubble and to the credit bubble that was created by the likes of Charlie McCreevy and, and Brian Lennon. And we saw then the true colours of, of the Fianna Fáil party, the party that was happy to cut the minimum wage by 40 euro a week, and the party that was to implement USC and that was to you know impose really, really austere uh, conditions on the Irish people. The crowning, I suppose, the crowning uh, punishment of which being the uh, 66 billion bank bailout. And, and that was the nail in the coffin for many, many traditional Fianna Fáil voters and families that would have aligned themselves to the Fianna Fáil wagon. And that for me is, I suppose, they are, they are my kind of prevailing memories of, of, of early life when it comes to politics. So I, I, I really struggle to, I suppose, elicit any positives about, sorry, elicit any positives from uh, my opinions of, of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and, and air them here because it's it's really, they really are for me um, broken records. And I think the people need, need to hear something a little bit different. And, you know, a scratch record on a broken vinyl player, that vinyl player being the establishment and the broken system that we've inherited. It's it's just not good enough and people need change. And I think that's that's one thing that we will see in, in, in this wave of change that we have been seeing in the last couple of years. So I suppose my opinions of Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and the Greens are prevailingly negative and haven't really changed since the days of all three of those parties being involved in coalitions. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, I think what, one thing you said that can't be denied is the fact that the word that has been cliched in our conversation, but also in the broader political conversation in Ireland has changed. Um, and... Um, uh, I definitely think um, the attitude, the cultural attitude towards Fidigir, Fianna Fáil and the government definitely is rooted in that word change. Um, so I, I guess um, just there's so much you said there that's super fascinating. Uh, and on Fianna Fáil, there was an interesting back and forth that Luke and I actually discussed recently in the Irish Times between Fintan O'Toole and Michal Martin on the nature of the party, the future of the party. And in past episodes, Luke and I have discussed whether Fianna Fáil possibly even have a party considering their performance in the polls and also their identity in modern Ireland and um, the youthful opinion of Fianna Fáil too. So it's definitely an interesting question that I'm sure the party and Irish politics will reckon with going into the future because as you said in regards to Labour's history, Fianna Fáil, you've mentioned it's also 
I've had a, a strong foothold, to say the least, in Irish politics uh, since the establishment of the state and independence. So, yeah, it would be interesting to see where things go. But I guess um, the kind of, I know you established you're a left-wing activist or a Labour Party member, but the kind of elicit from you, um, I think, views that may clash or at least opinions that may clash with your obvious sentiment uh, in regards to your political persuasion. If you could you know, maybe name, list, outline positive things that you think this government has done, if possible, <laughs> just to challenge you, what do you think you could say, <laughs> if you could? Well, it's, it's, that's, that's a very interesting question, Eric, and I'll just kind of briefly um, hit on something that you mentioned about, I suppose, colliding views or very, very contradicting views that I may hold, you know, towards Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil uh, being a member of, of the Labour Party. And just something that I'd like to say on that is, I think one particular feature of Labour is that despite entering coalitions that were in many ways flawed and in many ways um, not meant to happen, we did provide a very strong counterbalance to Fine Gael. But just to touch on, I suppose, the positives that this government and um, the positive things that this government have done and the positive if, things if you feel you has. can list any by the way <laughs> it's, it's, actually not, it, it's funny because it's it's not that hard and the reason i say that is because any positives that the government have have been involved in they've generally come as a result of labor bills so it's very easy for me to rattle off maybe sick pay coco's law uh, the exception of the acceptance of um, collective bargaining rights for people in the freelance art sector and various other changes that have been made to legislation brought through from opposition. Another good example, and I suppose this is more probably organic within the government, is the um, the recent hate, hate crime legislation that has been brought in. That's one thing that I suppose is a little bit more organic from the government that I have I have respected. So I think there's definitely, there's always going to be positives within governments. And I think this government is a little bit more, I think, it's it's a little bit more acceptive. Sorry, it, it, it's 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 more kind of conducive to working with and um, pragmatic opposition bills. And even in the Shannon, we see the work the government has done with Labour on on born here, belong here. That's hugely respected on a personal level for me. And I think the fact that we have seen some small positives from the government. It's, I personally think it's to be taken with a pinch of salt because it's what governments do. They enact policy that is in the interest of the public good. But as well as that, we do have to commend, you know, we have to give praise where due. And I think that's really important, even as far as the vaccine rollout is concerned, as far as um, certain facets of the reopening are concerned, we do need to give the government the pat on the back. But then again, we can't distract from the fact that we are opposition and we do provide a constructive and pragmatic um, opposition voice you know, in holding the government to account. But I, I certainly think that this government is not without its its small positives. But I do think it's to be remembered that opposition play a huge role in ensuring that the government does positive things and that, you know, as much as they are praised for it, opposition's the, the position and the role in which opposition plays in uh, these changes is, is respected and, and recognised. I guess moving on then, the last general election saw a massive shift um, in the electorate's choice towards Sinn Féin, and I guess the kind of the mantra for that was change. Um, I think Sinn Féin positioned themselves well in saying that, you know, uh, to use Mary, Mary Lou's phrase, um, Tweedledum, Tweedledee, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, uh, it's time to move on. 
I suppose, as a Labour member and as Jack Nolan, what is your opinion of um, Sinn Féin um, and Mary Lou McDonald's? What do you feel about the party um, and its course at the minute? Well, as someone who, you know, is a strong believer in left unity and yearns for the day that a left government can be elected to office, I think Sinn Féin are a really positive step in ensuring that we will see uh, a strong left government that will hold, um, I suppose, hold to their word and will deliver real change um, based around progressive left values. It's undeniable that Sinn Féin have a turbulent past, as does every party that has the longevity and has the, um, the heritage of being um, present I suppose, in Irish politics and within Irish society for the past 60 or 70 years and, and beyond. So I do accept that Sinn Féin have a very um, difficult past for many to deal with. I personally see it as a, a feature of the development of the Sinn Féin party. And as much as we seek to, you know, we should hold members of certain groups and certain organizations to account for very very regrettable and uh, reprehensible actions i think the modern Sinn Féin party embodies a new dawn and a real uh, commitment to the democratic process and i often find that the tropes about paramilitary organizations about the ira about um, sectarianism in the north are utilized by by Fine Gael in particular and to a lesser extent Fianna Fáil to distract from the fact that Sinn Féin have broad um, swathes of support, that there is a huge shift in their popularity and that there is a really, really strong yearning for um, this particular bloc to lead a left-wing government. So I think that's part and parcel of the narrative that um, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil tried to spin about Sinn Féin. That being said, we have to remember the fact that people will have concerns about maybe the um, the modern Sinn Féin party and what they stand for. On a personal level, as I said, I find it, I suppose, a positive that we have a party in the state that are facilitating conversations about Irish unity, that are prioritising economic justice, and that are prioritising um, issues that really matter to, to voters because obviously and some people may call it a feature of populism but Sinn Féin have a very very broad appeal to the electorate they are able to take a huge number of issues and condense them into a very palatable and um, manifesto and policy platform and that has to be admired if anything else and I'm going to put on the record here that I would be very happy to see Sinn Féin and Labour in government together despite the fact that we have our respective issues with each other we would walk incredibly well. As far as Mary Lou Macdonald is concerned, I might be a slight bit biased because she is actually a local TD. Um, but I, as a leader of, as, as I suppose the unofficial leader of the opposition, she's a really, really strong um, progressive voice and a, a voice that really will hold the government to account. And I think Mary Lou is a really, really strong advocate uh, for left-wing policies and politics. I, I think she would you know, ex do exceedingly well uh, in government. I think she will be a fantastic uh, asset to uh, to our nation's governance. But something I would like to kind of round this all off with is that um, I still think Sinn Féin 
although they have strong support at present. And they are the largest opposition party. The tradition and the unwavering commitment that Labour has to a very, very similar policy platform cannot be ignored. And that is one flaw that I do find uh, with the Sinn Féin party. We do see certain um, aspects of conflict within maybe policy platforms in the North and in the South. A particular example of that is their position on uh, abortion rights and termination of pregnancy. And, and that is something that we can't ignore and something that we do have to address. Yeah, well, it's great hearing your answer to that question. And um, I think I can speak for Luke when I say I definitely appreciate the um, uh, self-critical, I think, nature of your tone. Uh, not only when it comes to your party throughout the interview, but also when it came to Sinn Féin, which is a party on the left. Uh, we don't have too long left, but I, I want to, before getting to the next section of the interview, I want to ask you firstly about uh, a phrase you've used, a phrase I see all over Twitter, a phrase I see a lot of my friends use, uh, that is left-wing government. And it's all over the media too. It's been in newspapers also, um, the talk of a left-wing government. Um, you know, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, as you've mentioned, are not traditionally left-wing parties. The Green Party maybe can be seen as left to centre. Some people might push them further to the left if you're basing it on particular members of the party or maybe members that have even left as a result of the Greens entering government. But do you feel that, I personally speaking as Eric, I do believe there needs to be a change in how we do a lot of things within the country when it comes to approaching the big issues of our time. The electorate shares this sentiment to some degree, hence the electoral um, performance of Sinn Féin in the last election, but do you feel a left-wing, because to left-wing, it's an inherently ideological concept, do you feel a left-wing government is the golden bullet to obliterate all of the issues that exist, or do you believe there might be more, it might be more complicated than that, there might be more factors, um, and that if the left-wing government comes about, do you feel it's not going to be as easy to achieve the goals uh, that we all want to achieve as citizens of this nation. Um, yeah, so I, I pose this question to you first. I'd love to hear your brief response, and we're going to get on to the next section, uh, which I'm sure you're going to like. <laughs> well, that's that's a really interesting, I suppose, question to to finish that kind of section of, of the interview, Eric, because it's a question that is seldom asked about the concept of a left-wing government. Personally, I'm going to draw parallels with the inter-party government in 1948, the first coalition government uh, in the history of the Irish state. The idea of the Labour Party, National Labour, Clan uh, na Tawlin, Clan na Pawlachta, all being within government together was a very interesting concept and a radical concept at the time. Now, of course, the government itself was led by Fine Gael, but those um, groups being together in coalition was an interesting concept and a concept that a lot of people thought would redress the woes of the preceding Fianna Fáil um, administration. But that wasn't the case. As much as it was a revolutionary government in and of itself at the time, it did not redress and it did not uh, rehabilitate a broken system. And I firmly believe that that will be the case with a left-wing government in two eventualities. One, if it's fragmented and it's a loose coalition of parties that cannot unite over a strong yet succinct policy platform. And two, a left government will not succeed if it doesn't embrace a strong and unwavering ideological commitment. 
So I suppose what I'm saying there is we need a united, pragmatic approach to left-wing politics in this country. And we also can't have a case where we go all out and we have, you know, we, we get the majority of left-wing TDs that we need for a government. And then, you know, in three years' time, the government collapses. And, you know, we give fodder to Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael to turn around and say, well, there was your left government. Where was the change? Where was the elemental change? And where was the systematic overhaul of the problems that we've seen in the last 100 years as a semi-independent nation? So that's something I, I believe is really, really important, that we need a prolonged left-wing administration that is united. And in my personal opinion, I would draw a parallel to Jack Lynch's government. Jack Lynch's Fianna Fáil government is probably the most unusual thing you will ever hear compared to a strong, pragmatic left-wing government. But take ideology out of the question for a minute and look at what Jack did with Fianna Fáil as a party unit. If we were to have one united left-wing bloc, it doesn't have to be as, as strongly codified as one solid registered political party. But if we had one strong left alliance that embraced pragmatic democratic socialism and that prioritised a number of key issues and key um, strategic areas like health, housing, um, education, uh, you know, Ireland's stance internationally, and I suppose things like foreign affairs and trade, and, um, you know, I suppose looking at how we have a welfare system in this country, how we're restructuring, um, you know, as I said, our healthcare system, how we're providing, you know, affordable and sustainable social housing, how we are, you know, going about uh, abolishing third level fees, and the list could go on, but we need a succinct, really, really pragmatic platform to stand on, and we need a really, really strong group that will help deliver that. Yeah, fascinating stuff for sure. Um, and I definitely appreciate the fact that coupled with your ambition and hope, which uh, I think permeated everything you said, was the term pragmatism. So you mentioned being pragmatic. So going forward, I think Irish politics is going to be a frenzy and there's more that's going to arise. So I'm definitely excited to see ideas and concepts like a left in government play out, um, maybe practically too, as well as ideologically and conceptually. If, if, if the time comes. So the next question or section, Jack, is uh, centered in your jurisdiction as the president of Twitter. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's a dove that I think, I don't know, did you choose it? You highly chose a dove. I'd say someone bestowed it upon you. But uh, yeah, so it, it's, it's going to Twitter. Um, uh, this is an area that Luke and I have chatted about a bit on, on, uh, on our podcast. And yeah, a good bit personally and privately. I think lots of conversations internationally are happening in regards to Twitter and uh, maybe the style of activism that occurs in Twitter, on Twitter, the style of discourse that takes place on Twitter. Um, people complain, people defend it. Some people, there's hyperbole with the complaints, there's passion with the defense, and it's all over the place. And it's hard to really fathom what's going on and maybe construct a reasonable opinion on everything. So as a president of Irish Twitter, <laughs> which is maybe a detachment from, from wider Twitter, how do you feel about, because of course there's so much positives to Twitter. Twitter has been responsible for a lot of my political education when it comes to a lot of things. Um, uh, but in terms of the discourse there more broadly, do you think in the context of politics and culture, uh, political culture, the discourse is wholly fruitful and absolutely, absolutely healthy? 
or do you think there are aspects of it that are maybe quite negative and regressive and maybe are tied to the concepts that a lot of people are criticizing today, things like cancel culture and, uh, and the lack of tolerance and the liberalism and the like. So I'd love to get your take on this um, for sure. Yeah. So take the floor. <laughs> well, I have to say I'm, I'm fairly humbled by the, uh, the introduction uh, by you, Eric, of president of Irish Twitter. And I think... Um, I, I will I will say despite as as many people might think yeah, sorry contrary to what many people might think uh, despite the fact that I probably in some people's eyes have a massive ego I, I didn't uh, bestow that title upon myself uh, contrary to popular belief uh, or or so I have to say just to keep uh, just to keep people at bay but um I think Twitter is a, a very it's a very interesting microcosm of society it's a really interesting um attempt to replicate what real life is like. And I think if you're going to look at it in that light, it's failed abysmally. I think Twitter is a very, very useful tool, as you said, for political education and to get people politically engaged and active and to make people more aware of the beliefs of others when it comes to really, really hot topic issues. And it really does um, link people. It connects people. I've met some really, really good friends through Twitter. And it's, it's so powerful in its yield. And it's something that can be used for great benefit. But I think if you're to look at it with any great realism and to cast a scathing eye on Twitter and social media more broadly, it does fail to encapsulate what life is like beyond the screen. I think the issues that you see around discourse, you see the most frivolous of issues being debated as if you're in the Oxford Union or if you're in Trinity Libraries, having, you know, a fully fledged and um, an adjudicated debate on, you know, what, what color your toast might be or what, you know, what your favorite uh, level of milk in your tea is. It, it really would in some ways just, you know, drain the life out of you. So I think when it comes to politics and um, when it comes to the political discourse that is on there, it can often be no different. We get fixated on really, really small issues and issues that maybe are, I suppose, when you look at the echo chambers that develop within Twitter, they are broadly agreeable within the echo chambers that they find themselves in. But people within that kind of chamber will always find a really small detail that they may disagree with and something that they can start maybe a discussion about. And I think what happens is often on Twitter, it's very reductionist. You can take a really, really, you know, in my case, attractive um, issue or attractive, um, you know, idea like a left government. And you can put it out on Twitter, you know, within a tweet or, you know, as a particular take, and it can be broken down into the smallest of issues. And people can, I suppose, go for each other's throats over the smallest facet of what on the whole is a broadly agreeable topic to talk about. So I think it really doesn't replicate real life in the sense that it's so reductionist, but when we can embrace an issue and we can agree on it broadly on Twitter, I think it's representative of what we should be doing in the real world. And there's many ways in which we see that we see you know, political campaigns, whole political campaigns like the anti-conversion therapy coalition being developed solely through social media. And that's a really, really strong force for good when you see campaigns just emerge out of the ether from social media. And that's emblematic of what we can do in real life. But as far as replicating it, you know, verbatim is concerned, it does fail to address 
the nuances of, of I suppose, reality and, you know, these conversations. But I think, and you mentioned uh, cancel culture, Twitter can often be a very useful place to um, hold particular ideas or particular, um, you know, views or persuasions to account. I think the way we see that so acutely is in, you know, the far right, in people that enter social media or create social media accounts to be hateful or to be bigoted or to spread discrimination and division, they can be taken to task and they can be victims of their own instrument. It doesn't just remove them from their own echo chamber. It removes them from, you know, the whole of that kind of sphere that you find yourself in, whether it's political Twitter, whether it's football Twitter, whether it's anything, you're able to remove really, really negative aspects of social media through you know strong pressure and i suppose solidarity from other people on social media and that i suppose is one of the benefits of how you can see social media being used as a force for good so i think taking that kind of real life pragmatic approach and often taking a step back is very very important yeah well from the president himself uh <laughs> yeah no honestly jack thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast it was so great to hear your views on a lot of the issues that we brought forth uh, this is all about giving you the opportunity uh, as a member of the Labour Party, a youth activist and uh, Twitter's president uh, <laughs> to express your opinions on a lot of these matters and issues. Um, so it was fantastic to hear your thoughts. And yes, no, if you want to find Jack anyways, you can find him via Instagram. Would you like to share some of your Instagram and Twitter tags? Do you know what, Eric? I wasn't going to ask for a shameless self-promotion, but now that you've mentioned it, uh, anyone who wants to get in contact or get in touch or, you know, even it doesn't have to be about politics or about activism if you just want to chat, uh, my Twitter is at Jack Nolan, double underscore, so underscore, underscore, Instagram, underscore, Jack, underscore, Nolan. And if you want to find my Facebook, it's it's just Jack Nolan. You'll see a big Palestine banner around my profile picture, so it won't be that hard to find. But uh, yeah, if anyone wants to reach out, it can be about activism, it can be about politics, or it can just be about anything in between. So uh, I'd just like to say to yourself, Eric and Luke, uh, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Uh, it's been quite surreal to be interviewed by two people that I would consider good friends and people that I know beyond Zoom, beyond Twitter, but it's been a very, very enjoyable um, hour, hour and a half to, to be able to talk about really, really important issues, issues of great importance to me. And it's been great to be able to contribute to a podcast that is really, really, um, you know, it's been really fruitful in the conversations that it's been having with people. And it's provoked a lot of really, really interesting topics. And it's brought to light really, really interesting people and opinions. So I'm really, really happy to be part of this. And I wish you every success in, in carrying on the podcast. So again, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much, Jack. Thank you.